Well, we're in our second week of a series called Rerooted. It's rooting into God's ancient church. It's about being the body of Christ, not just a bunch of scattered people. How do we do this church thing? In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 23, Jesus says maybe one of the most provocative things that he says in his entire ministry, in his life on earth. He says this phrase, and it's on the screen, it says that the greatest among you will be your servant. The greatest among you will be your servant. Jesus is saying this in the midst of a group of people called the Pharisees. They're the religious rulers of the day, but not in the way that you might think of religious rulers. They aren't just religious figures like the Pope or a pastor or an elder. At this time, the nation of Israel is God's chosen vessel of hope for the world. Religion was government. And these people ran it. There was no division of church and state like you and I know. The Pharisees and groups called the scribes and the Sadducees, which are various sects in Judaism that have various beliefs, they were in charge and the directors of religious life but life in general in this time. They were the government. And Jesus took great exception to these people. He took great issue with this ruling class. This provocative statement of being a servant comes in the midst of Jesus speaking some very harsh and pointed words towards the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And we'll read this together. This is Right before Jesus says this line, the greatest among you will be your servant, it says this, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, Moses' seat would be this place in the temple that you would bring your disputes in the law and with people, and there would be a ruler that sits on that seat, and they would interpret your situation, interpret the law, and they would give you what was right. That's what it means to sit on. It's a judge seat. So they scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. These leaders of the day grew to love themselves. They loved their opinions. They had a desire for prestige and popularity and status. They wanted titles and position and constantly were trying to outdo each other, trying to top one another. And all of these things were created from a heart that was full of pride, deadly pride that created a laser-like focus on themselves, their agendas, their personal preferences, over anything else and everyone else. And it was their pride that blinded them from seeing who Jesus really was. Light of the world, Savior of mankind, God's only Son. And he says to this group, the greatest among you, will be your servant. 
And so in our time together today, what we want to do is identify and remember what it means to be great and what it means to be a servant. Because there are lots of definitions about those words that get you to the wrong place. And then we want to tie those ideas into what it means to be a servant towards God and towards his church, the local body of believers. And we're going to do that by talking about one profound movement that we as a church need to make in our personal lives and in the church as a collective. And then we're going to redefine one question. Okay? So two words, one movement, one question redefined, and then we're going to revisit the volunteer fair. So lots to do today. So in this text, Jesus is kind of retooling this idea of greatness. When this culture would think of greatness, they would probably think in the same, the same way that we would think of greatness. It was about status and wealth and position. But Jesus links this idea to greatness. He links it to being a servant. And that would have been unheard of in that time. It would have been repulsive in that time as well. Because the idea of a servant meant ownership that you were a possession, that you were dictated by somebody else's opinions and thoughts and authorities. We have rejected that slave-like mentality, but Jesus is very much saying that this type of servanthood in this passage is what makes us great. And that would have been repugnant to the leaders of the day. Would have been repugnant. And so what that means is that greatness is linked to your ability to come under, submit to something or someone, to be a possession. That greatness, according to the words of Jesus, is not about accumulating accolades or stuff by human hands. It's not about how people view you. It's not about how many people report or submit to you. It's not even about you finding the best version of you. Not any of those things. It's about who or what you attach yourself to. Who or what you put yourself under, submit, and aspire to. And look, that may sound completely foolish. That may sound ridiculous to claim greatness in that capacity. But Scripture is very, very clear that we will be a slave to sin or we will be a slave to righteousness. Your life is further proof that this is true. All the means of being great on this earth, whether it be wealth or status or position or power, are all about you submitting to some concept, idea, or thought or cause. It's about you submitting to some future version of yourself that is promoted, that has a bigger bank account, that has a healthier hate waistline, or an earlier retirement. That is what we submit to. If you want concrete example of our need for Jesus, we need to look at our hearts. In this world, your greatness will be determined by how much you sacrifice and submit to whatever your idea of greatness is. And listen, our continual growth and glad submission to our devices and our technology where we attach ourselves to our phones 
eagerly waiting for their dings and bells to interrupt and influence our lives, like a butler waiting for its master's bell, is more evidence than we need to understand that we are a broken and busted humanity. Desperately wondering this world to figure out what we will serve and what will give us meaning. Jesus' words says that greatness is not an innate human capacity. You're not born with it. It will always be about what you serve. And what you serve matters greatly to Jesus. When he speaks uh, that the greatest among you will be a servant, he's speaking this in the face of power and wealth and prestige as known in the Pharisees and the scribes. He is rejecting this idea of serving self, serving the world. It is not to be our master. Jesus earlier in Matthew says these words, No one can serve two masters. Further, he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus, in this passage, is telling us that we are undeniably going to serve either God or money. And when we talk about money, it's this idea of self and world. We're going to serve self and world or God. You can't do both. We want both, but we can't have both. So it's either greatness by serving the world and being known by the world, or greatness by serving God. But we will serve one master, not both. And Jesus' words are clear that there are two choices, but there's only one option. There's only one good option. In Mark 8, these are the words of our Savior. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is Jesus saying about our choice to serve the world that in fact it's a choice of destruction, not a choice of greatness. Greatness in the world is meaningless to a God that created it and loved it. Greatness in the world is meaningless when that world has walked away from God and pursued their own interest. That's not the greatness that Christ desires in us. What he does want for us is to attach ourselves to him. The scripture says, come to me and put my yoke upon you. That yoke, that word is meaning this harness that oxen and bulls would put around their necks that the driver could control them and lead them. Jesus is saying, come under me, under my love, under my authority. Attach yourself to me. Scripture says that all things are possible for those who believe. And that possibility is not predicated on you. It's predicated on what you believe. Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so our greatness will always be about how much we are willing to submit, sacrifice, and surrender to Jesus. Not because he's a tyrant that wants robots or rule followers, but simply because he's better. He's better. 
And I don't want you to hear me say this expectation that it's a perfect choice. The world or Jesus. Completely cutting one off and perfection in the other. That, that's not what I'm saying. This is a process of you walking towards Jesus. Towards his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, and away from the world. It's about your desire. It's about a deep abiding affection for Jesus and nothing else. It's about walking towards him. Let that be your prayer. Thank God you would help me to desire you more than anything else. And so this is what it means to be great. And this is what it means to be a servant. Right greatness, right submission to whom or what you serve. And when we attach ourselves to Jesus, as we are drawn by his loving kindness, if we by faith believe in him, that attachment should produce a different flavor, a different heart, a different way. We have a different outlook on life as a Christian. Think about this. If one of your family members became the president of the United States of America, it'd be crazy. Would you not position yourself in your association with them to benefit from their perks and their luxuries and their abilities? That in your association with them that you might get to experience some of them? Yes. That is similar but dissimilar to Jesus. Because being a servant of Christ means that we get all the perks of a holy God. Because of what Jesus has done and my faith in him and his adoption of me as his son and daughter as family, we get holiness, we get righteousness, we get love and grace, we get all of those perks. But what is different in this way? That Christ was born to die. God in all humility humbles himself, leaves his majesty, leaves his honor to become flesh, to deal with the problem of human sin. Your association to Jesus, being a servant to Jesus, is tying yourself to the death of Christ. It's tying yourself to the lack of esteem, the denial of honor, the humility and weakness that rescued humanity. You're yoked with a man whose mission it was, was to die for you, that you may be raised. His death brings his resurrection, that we might live through him. So as Jesus humbles himself to save us, we in recognition of how far he came for us, serve him. We serve him. We give our all to him. We are God's chosen partners in this world to show his glory, to reconcile the world to himself. And the way that will be done is by being a servant in Christ, an ambassador, a representation that in association with his greatness and his joy and his prestige and his ability, not our own, that the world may know him and find hope. Our life should look more like Jesus who served us to the point of death. Paul writes this in Philippians 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourself, count others more significant than yourself. Like the most gospel-centric idea that a Christian can have is this. Because of Jesus, 
I'm willing to count you more significant than myself. Because of Jesus, I am going to make this about you and not about me. Because of Jesus, I'm going to come under you with Christ and serve you. That is our posture to the world, and that is our posture towards one another, the church. Here's a great mental image for you to ingrain in your head as you face the realities of life. That you would repeat in your head over and over again that because of Christ, I will make myself low. That when you're interacting in the world, that because of Jesus, I'm going to elevate you. And picture that person being elevated and find yourself being lowered. That is the most gospel-centric movement that a believer can make. That is our hope of humanity. This is our stance toward the world, but more specifically, it's our stance towards one another. That attachment to God would mean that we would come under the body of Christ. Because at the end of the day, if we can't count others in here more significant than ourselves, we've missed it. We've missed it. Paul writes in his letter to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 5, he says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free but not to use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather to serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says that you have freedom. You are not oppressed by the law. Jesus fulfilled it. You have faith in him and his perfect life. And because of that, you Christian, serve one another. That the greatest evidence in your life of Jesus' love being in you and around you is your ability to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if we can't serve each other as the body of Christ, as believers, in this room or in the churches around us, if we can't submit and serve and care for one another, we've missed it. We've missed the truth of Christ. We've missed what Christ has done for us. We've, we've named this series Rerooted for a reason. Because all of us come into church for various different reasons. Maybe you were born in church. Maybe you were raised in church. Maybe you're at a low spot in your life. But many, many of us came in here with some personal agenda, some personal preference, or some personal means of enjoyment, or personal need that needed to be met. And that is good. But at some point, for the church to be church and not just some social club, we have to reroute ourselves back into God's body by the means of service and sacrifice and love and commitment for one another. That is what Paul is commending to the early church here. And so there is a movement that is desperately needed in every believer's life when it comes to the body of Christ. A movement that makes a profound difference in the church being the church. That movement is moving from consumer to instrument. From consumer to instrument. If Jesus died for me, if he paid for my sin, 
if by faith in him I'm adopted as sons and daughters, something has to change. 1 Corinthians says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify Christ. We glorify Christ by serving one another. And we serve one another because of Jesus. We are his servants now. Paul David Tripp is an author, he's a speaker, has some great stuff on parenting. And he writes about this idea of moving from a consumer to an instrument. And he writes that today as Christians, we are more comfortable being consumers and very timid about being instruments. If you're an instrument, it means that you're a tool in the hands of another. But if you're a consumer, others are a tool in your hand to use. We like the control of being a consumer. We don't like the availability of being an instrument that I might be used not by my own control, that I might be used not because of my own comfort, that it won't be about my discretion, but about another's, namely Jesus. And so I want you to understand today that because of Jesus, because of his grace and his mercy, you are an instrument. You are an instrument in his hands. Each one of you have been gifted with talents and skills and abilities that were meant to serve the church, each other's, and far less yourself. They are gifts that were meant to serve each other here in God's body, God's people, in this local body. Local believers together, caring for one another. Peter writes to the churches in modern-day Turkey, which is Asia Minor in this time. He writes in chapter 4, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. What that verse says is this, is that your gift, your abilities, your talents, your wisdom are all the grace of God. We deserve nothing And God, out of His gracious compassion, has given us effort and skills and talents and wisdom. And we are to use those things to edify Him, to build each other up. Now, I'm going to proceed in this conversation without identifying what your gift is. That is something that we're going to talk about next week when we talk about how we serve the church. This week we're talking about why we serve the church. And to do that, I want to bring all of this together. We, because of Jesus, are compelled to serve. Being a servant is the evidence in our lives of redeemed hearts. To be great in the kingdom of God, we must serve one another. Because if he did it, if that is who he was, then that is who we are. And we, his redeemed possession, his people, called to be in fellowship with one another, believers regularly meeting together. We need to be together to encourage and love each other. And we're called to do it this way as Peter and Paul have wrote that we would serve one another. We are instruments to be used amongst each other. We're not consumers. Instruments available for God to be used. We must sacrifice our gifts and our talents, the skills that we have, the time that we have, for the flourishing of God's people, God's church, and our communities. 
So look, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to twist Scripture to compel you to join our tech teams, our children's ministry teams, or our property teams. Can't twist Scripture to do this. All of those are Western concepts of church. Tech teams didn't exist in the Bible. Children's ministry didn't exist in the Bible. I can't twist Scripture to persuade you in that way. What I can do is ask you to consider this. So many times we know about opportunities in the church, things that we're able to do, and we say to ourselves, why should I do this? We sell ourselves on why we should do something, why that opportunity would be good for us. But if Scripture is inspired and true, which it is, if Christ has redeemed and saved us, if God has allotted my boundaries, my period, my time to be planted with these people in this time and this moment, which he has, if he has called me to count others more significant than myself, if he is asking me to be a servant, to be less, then we need to change the question. We need to think differently. It's to redefine that question to say this. If this is my church, why not me? If these are my people, why not me? If we're doing this together, if we have gifts, if Christ is my Savior, why not me? Are we being faithful in the gifts that God has given to us? Are we sacrificing those gifts for the betterment of God, His church, His people? Or do we bend them towards ourselves? And so I said I wasn't going to twist Scripture to compel you to fill our teams. But if this is your local church, if this is your home, if God gave us this building, He did, if we come together to worship here, if we meet here and edify the Word together, why not share the load? Why not steward this thing together? Why not give of our gifts and our talents to each other? Why not change our rhythms to sacrifice for what is better? The greatest among you will be your servant. The greatest among you will be your servant. That has to go beyond these walls. It has to go beyond the walls, but it has to start here. And so there are many of you in here who have been faithful for decades in serving this church, to come around this church. You have found in your service gratifying community, uplifting hope as you walk with life in life together with others. If that is you, praise God. If that is you, praise God. We know that serving is important. We know that it matters. And so here's what I'm asking you to consider. I'm asking you to take your gifts and talents and serve God and to serve the church. In our coffee lounge, we have our ministries, not all of them, but most of them laid out. The teams that we do, we have a, a vision of Ephesians 4.12, which means this, is that we as leaders of this church, believe that it's our job to equip and train the saints, you, to do the work of ministry. 
Far too often the church in America professionalizes and pays for people to do ministry. It is all of our job to carry that load. And so we are going to build healthy teams here. And so what we want you to consider is how your gifts and talents fit here. And we ask that you would go into that lounge and maybe pray through, consider it's going to be here for the next three weeks, places that you could plug in. We're not going to pressure you. We're not going to push you. But we weren't meant to keep these gifts to ourselves. We weren't meant to serve ourselves. Because of Jesus, we do it different. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today, and this is probably one of the hardest things that that we have to fight in our lives. Uh, Because this culture constantly is feeding consumption. It's constantly feeding being a consumer. God, the word sacrifice, not even in my vocabulary at times, it's an illusion that I'm sacrificing something that really doesn't cost me anything. And so, Jesus, we pray today that you would break us. That, God, we would desire you more than anything in this world. And that we would grow to believe and hope in and love your church. The mission and the hope of the world has never changed. It will be through the church. God, help us to grow in love with each other more. Help us to serve each other more. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.